Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you family of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. <clears throat> Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad that the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Praise the Lord. Okay, next reading is Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God 
persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Okay, rather than a rosy vision of a distant future, uh, may I take us to a depressing vision of a disastrous past. Um, So I trust that we still have the glorious Revelation 5 still ringing in our ears from a moment ago and the Come Here the Angels Sing um, from a short time ago now. Uh, but from Revelation 5, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, this, this spectacular, all-encompassing image in mind. Now, please come with me to what must, I think, surely be among the most important chapters in all of the Old Testament. How do you even make that kind of a judgment? I don't know, but you get what I mean. 2 Kings chapter 17. Could we turn there together? 2 Kings chapter 17. Do you know the one? So in 2 Kings 17, it's one of the lesser known, but I think really significant Old Testament chapters. Um in, in that chapter, unfolding before our almost disbelieving eyes, we see that moment where God, I, I don't think this is too strong to say, decisively disowns his people, the northern kingdom of Israel, in devastating, depressing, indeed deathly terms. On a day in history, in 722 BC, 2 Kings chapter 17. Have you got it there? I'm going to read selected bits of it because it's a long chapter, but there's some key things that I would like to draw out. I'll start at verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshia, so we're in the northern kingdom, Hoshia, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshia. Uh, Verse 5 the king of Assyria, invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, that's the capital city, by the way, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, you'll remember that he reigns for only nine years, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in um, a whole string of cities there. Verse 7. All this took place because, and this is why I think it's one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament, because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. Come down to verse 15, partway through verse 15. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. Come down to verse 18. 
So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. And right down at verse 41, all the way down at verse 41, even while these people were worshipping the Lord, they were serving their idols. Um, friends, I, I trust we know the story of the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah persisted for a little longer and its circumstances were a little different, but not that different. Uh, we know the story. Men and women and boys and girls, actual people who had known the presence of their Lord in their midst, who had witnessed his power to save them, who had enjoyed his protection, they came to see him not as radiantly magnificent, as supremely glorious in their eyes, as their one and only whom they might magnify to a watching world all around about them. Instead, we look upon a willful and wayward and wandering people. And we look, may I put it this way, upon the death of worship itself in this chapter. Removed from his presence, verse 18. But if I may, I think there's actually something yet more tragic in 2 Kings 17, uh, because the depressing nightmare runs a little deeper yet and still darker. I think the most depressing feature of the chapter is not that worship died in Israel for Israel. Worse, it's that worship died for the entire world. Isn't that what we're shown next? further on here, because it's actually not that no one knows the name of the Lord anymore. How will the world even hear of his name? In fact, by the end of the chapter, many nations get to know his name. It's just that they don't care. He is not magnificent to them, nor even to Israel, nor to anyone. So have a look at verse 24. Verse 24, 2 Kings 17. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthar, Ava, Hamath and Sepharvaim and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. Right, So he's booted the Israelites out, he brings a whole bunch of foreigners in. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they didn't worship the Lord. So he, as in the Lord, sent lions among them and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria don't know what the God of that country requires. He sent lions amongst them, which are killing them off because the people don't know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, have one of the priests that you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel, and taught them how to worship the Lord, which sounds so promising, doesn't it? It sounds, oh, there we go. Nevertheless, verse 29, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. Down at verse 33, they worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, writes the author of Two Kings, they persist in their former practices. If worship is ever to live again, then it must arise, not from our wayward and our wandering world. We must find one, I think the Old Testament leads us to hope, 
find one who can lead us to worship the one God worthy of our worship. Namely, we must find the Lord Jesus Christ, our worship leader for our whole world, who will bring us to God in pure worship and lead the nations around God in worship. Having found him, join him then as he proceeds to win more and more of our world to worship the one true God. Shall we pray together as we reflect on our topic for today? Let's pray. Our Father God, as we look back on that dark and depressing day in history, we, we can't help but wonder, would we actually have done any better? But God, we don't want to be a people who trust in our capacity or our courage to stand. We do want to be a people who trust in Christ as the one who has led us to you in true worship. So as his people, would you help us now, please, as we arise, uh, sorry, as we aspire toward the worshippers that you would have us become? As we look back at the empty and evil ways that you'd have us leave behind, may we learn to magnify our God, please, in community together. May our worship become more pure, more pleasing to you, and we trust more persuasive to the watching world around us as you continue your work to win yet more worshippers to your ways. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There we are. Our big idea there. So uh, having met the one worthy of our worship, that was talk number one. We met the one worthy of our worship. Could we direct our attention to the impact that we hope to have on our world around us? Uh, that task of magnification, if you like, um, and specifically the impact on the worship of the world around us? Or perhaps better, not the impact that we mean to have as, we, as if we are the author of God's mission to the world. We are absolutely not. But how practically might our worship of God inspire the wonder and win over the world to worship the God that we mean to magnify together. That's our kind of direction for this morning, more of a, um, a how than the who, if we're focused on the who um, already. And our big idea for this morning, let us worship our one true God as the wonder of our whole world, as the wonder of our whole world. Um, I, I wonder, could we, do we need to open a little bit, get a bit more cross ventilation? I feel quite warm up here. I find it hard to concentrate when I'm warm. And if I'm not concentrating, frankly, what hope have you guys got? So, yeah. Uh, so let's worship our one true God as the wonder of our world. I, I, I guess what I hope to show us is that in Christ, God's intention has always been that any gospel community, our GCs, us as a whole gospel community, any church, that a gospel community that healthily and holistically applies itself to pure and true worship in obedience to him, will actually serve to uh, serve his purposes to win the world uh, to worship our God. Uh, that is, we don't need to choose between mission and worship. We don't need to choose between edification and evangelism as if they are in tension and opposed to one another. We don't need to choose between loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength and loving our neighbour as ourselves. Those two aren't opposed to one another. They are in harmony with one another. Let us worship our one true God as the wonder of our whole world. And I have three points, and as we'll see in our uh, GCs over the coming months as we get into the topic of worship together in that context, 
these three points for this morning, they cover three aspects or dimensions of true worship as the Bible describes it. They're three lenses through which the Bible explores the topic of worship right across its whole breadth. Um, If I were to give them their kind of stuffy names, they would sound something like this, homage and service and um, uh, reverence or perhaps... Uh, submission and rituals and fear of the Lord. There's a a whole vocabulary around it. Um, But here's how I'd like to help us remember the breadth of worship in gospel community, using some of those stuffy words, but not all of them. Let's learn to become the repentant faithful who serve. I'll say these titles again on the way through, don't worry. The repentant faithful who serve, raving fans who sing, and the reverent fearers willing to sacrifice. And I'm suggesting that those three sketch the practical scope of worship, um, a life bent on magnifying our God and gospel community together. And I'd actually like to start in the place that probably looms the largest when we set our minds to Old Testament worship specifically. The first point, the repentant faithful will serve. Um, Let me give one piece of background and then I'll try to summarise where I'm going here. So for vast swathes of the Old Testament, think about the Old Testament and worship in the Old Testament. For vast swathes of the Old Testament, worship language and worship practice, it becomes dominated by one colossal piece of architecture looming in the people, amongst the people of Israel, in the lives of the people of God, around which so much of their worship functionally revolves. And that structure was the temple, the temple or the tabernacle in, in times before the temple, the place where God's name dwelled at the heart of his city there in Jerusalem, the place that stood for his very presence amongst his people. Uh, and if you, an Israelite, if you wanted to worship God in faithfulness uh, to the wonder of the world, then the temple, that was your headquarters. And the priests, uh, were, they were your worship leaders. And the seemingly endless laws and prescriptions, they were your liturgy. And in large part, those rituals revolved around a couple of things. They revolved around celebration, positively, of God's saving acts, all of those festivals and so forth. Celebration and negatively around sin and how to secure God's forgiveness from it, all of the sacrifices and so forth, you remember, right? So there we are at the temple, all the priests and the liturgy and the physical architecture and the, the, um, the personnel and uh, the liturgical structure around it. Was the temple then only for the Israelites? Did it bar the way uh, for, from the world in their access to God? Did it in any sense serve to magnify their God to the whole world? Well, Solomon thought that it was for the whole world and he ought to know because he built the thing. So this is Solomon on the day that they dedicated the temple. If you're quick, you might like to turn there. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. Where we read, this is Solomon speaking, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, he's uh, praying to God at the moment, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. 
So there's the background, a faithful, repentant people, aware of their sin, in awe of God's holiness, who set themselves to serve God in these very particular prescribed, carefully prescribed patterns and rituals at particular times of year, um, at one particular place, following specific rules and with very definite guarantees from God for them and goals in those acts. The repentant faithful gave to God the very specific service that God required of them there at the temple. Humankind were not to invent their patterns of worship. And as we've seen from the example of the nations, they couldn't just co-opt a bit of God into their own uh, foreign practices of worship as in the hope of pleasing God. But why the history lesson? Here's where it gets interesting. The letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament says, Christian, you know, don't you, that Christ has fulfilled the temple. Uh, You meet with God not at an address in Israel. You don't have to fly to the other side of the world, O Australian, to meet with God. No, you meet with God by faith in Christ. He is the place for you to meet with God. And you know that Christ has fulfilled the priesthood as well, right? Uh, those sincere, those sinful human priests, Christ superseded with his own sinless and unstained sacrifice. So you stand forgiven now uh, because of the sacrifice of your, your great high priest, your true great high priest who super, superseded all that came before him. And you know that Christ offers you a surer salvation, don't you, Christian? A more lovely law, a more wonderful new covenant, and on it goes through Hebrews. But then Hebrews... But the author to the Hebrews, he calls us to a very specific pattern of service, of uh, ministry, of worship, to use this uh, whole temple language. Could we read from Hebrews 10 together? It was alluded to um, earlier in uh, the conference, but let's read from Hebrews 10 together, so please turn there. Because it's like we ushered into the very heart of the temple of God, the place where such specific service was called for and sacrifices and rituals and rites and customs and do it precisely this way. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance, the, the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's, it, notice that it's like at verse 24 there, the author, having gently guided us and assured us and ushered us into the very presence of God, says, oh, hello, we're all here together. Look around. Look at the people that you've been gathered here with in gospel community. Can you see the image? I sort of picture in my mind like a chute or a a funnel or a corridor, perhaps better, a a tunnel climbing ever upwards 
and at the end shines our hope there um, at the very end of verse 25 uh, as we see the day approaching there's the bright shining thing at the end of the tunnel uh, drawing us on toward God but every st- every it's a narrowing uh, tunnel na- narrowing shoot in the sense that every step that draws me closer to him draws me closer alongside you nearer together as brothers and sisters at least that's how it ought to be so in our very DNA as God's children, as we approach him in worship, I am drawn ever nearer to help you and to spur you and to encourage you, sometimes to drive or to drag you, just as at times you will need to drive or drag me until we finally arrive at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's got to make you wonder, why has the author put that kind of service right there in the midst of all of this temple, holy place, the place of very specific, highly structured worship or service of God, historically speaking. Here's my hunch. It's it's to remind us that we can only draw near to God together. There is no gospel unity with God apart from gospel community with Christ. There is no gospel unity with God apart from gospel community with Christ, and that means amongst his people. We do church, not just because it's a good idea, but because it's who we are. We do gospel community because it's who we are, not just because it's a good idea. So before I move on, may I just make one passing application. Will we make the community of God's people a priority this year? Now, clearly you have because you are here. (laughs) Well done. Good. You're expressing this perfectly at the moment. Will we make the community of God's people a priority this year to serve and to spur and to help one another hold on to our hope and to encourage each other? Uh, Perhaps, and I say this um, gently and understanding that there can be confounding good factors and reasons uh, for each of us, maybe for some of us it's time to get back to GC for this year. Had a bit of a break. Maybe it's time to get back. Maybe that's a good expression of what this could be talking about for you. Maybe it's time to hop in on the new Summerlees youth community. Maybe you've stood a little apart for whatever reason from uh, youth ministry at Summerlees in the past. Maybe this is the year to get back in, to express uh, the gospel community that we are drawn into in Christ. Maybe, actually, it's neither of those things. It's not so much the structural things. It's actually just one-on-one thing, meaningfully connecting in community with one another somehow. Uh, maybe it's just coming to church Sunday by Sunday a little bit more. Uh, the tragedy of you missing church is not so much here in, in uh, Hebrews because you might not make it to the end, you know, as we see the day approaching. Not really. That doesn't seem to be the primary implication here. It's just that we'll be the poorer for your absence. And you probably will be too. Not so much that we miss you, though we do and we will, but more that we miss out on you magnifying God to us as only you can in the enabling of God. Secondly, raving fans who sing. Could you turn to Psalm 96 briefly with me? Psalm 96. And just have a look at uh, chapter uh, verses 1 to 3 with me there, please. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. That was the call of God's children, but do you notice, to the whole world there in Psalm 96, sing to the Lord, all the earth is their instruction. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, 
his marvellous deeds among all peoples. See, God's people at our best have always, throughout history, raised our voices to the world with a call to worship. God's people have always been raving fans who sing of their God. Um, But could we turn to Isaiah 60? Come with me to Isaiah 60. We're doing this whole sort of survey of the, the scriptures this morning. Isaiah 60 which gives us a glimpse of how the world then responds to that gospel call, all right? If the people of God faithfully cry out to him with, as raving fans, um, calling on sing to the Lord, all the earth, how does the earth respond? And you'll notice, Isaiah chapter 60, uh, that this chapter uses a metaphor of more light and dark rather than voices and song, but in context, it is the word of the Lord, according to the end of chapter 59. It's supposed to be verbal, I think. Um, And God speaks to his people, Isaiah 60, here. And he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Looking ahead to the coming salvation that we now have in Christ. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of nations will come. Herds of camels will cover the land. I won't, uh, I'll spare you the details. Midian, Ephah, Sheba, Kedah, Nebaioth. The idea is the world is flocking to you, my people. Why? Because you're radiant with the light that the gospel of the gospel that I have shone upon you. Down at verse 8, who are those that fly like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands, right? It's the whole world is the idea here. Surely the islands look to me. In the lead of the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold, to the honour of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendour. Brothers and sisters, what is Isaiah describing here? Here's a thought. Isaiah describes not merely some far-off dream of some distant era uh, that we've read about in, say, Revelation and sung about this morning, He describes the light of the gospel shining in the midst of the world, first in the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, but around which the nations will flock, and they will flock precisely because his people's hearts, what does it say, throb and swell with joy. Uh, You will look, verse 5, you will look and be radiant. I think it's worth asking just in terms of taking our own sort of spiritual temperature of our own worship before the Lord, do our hearts throb? Are we radiant with his gospel? And yes, of course, I I know there is absolutely a future dimension to this, an eschatological and in the end uh, dimension to this, of course. And so um, Philippians 2, for example, those beautiful, beautiful words there that every knee shall bow, and that absolutely is future there. Um, And every tongue confess, again, future, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's true. There absolutely is a future dimension to this. But I guess I'm asking, 
do we, with that sort of theological framework in place, do we so push the awe and the grandeur and the wonder off into the future that we feel that it's somehow not necessary in the present age? Yeah, it'd be a bit over the top. Don't want to be too overflowing about the things of the Lord in our present lives, that God should be our delight right now. Aren't we to be raving fans of our saving God even now? So practically speaking, how could we, say this year, put these verses that I'm about to read into practice from Ephesians 5, uh, well-known verses, how could we put them into practice in our gospel communities, uh, in the classics and the DNAs and the whole family learnings and just the rhythms of life together? Uh, more than that, outside of the structures, just in our family devotions or our workplace devotions. Some of us are lucky enough to work in places where you get to have workplace devotions. What a wonderful thing that is. Or indeed just how we carry ourselves uh, around the workspace if we're in a more secular environment. Uh, you remember, of course, these verses. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, here we go, instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Notice the two dimensions there, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and, spirit, and, and songs from the Spirit and make music from your heart to the Lord. It's both. It's the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. Always giving thanks, verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do get me right. Like, I'm not saying that you, you must sing, like literally sing in GC. Oh, you can if you want, and maybe some of you do. I'm sure some of you do. Maybe that's something I need to take on in our GC. I don't know. And it's lovely if you do, right? I'm not saying that you must do it that way, that it has to express itself um, in that form. But could we give it some thought? That's all I'm asking. How could the song of the gospel bubble up and boil over and spill out from the hearts and lives of our gospel communities this year. And thirdly and finally, and we're just about there, the reverent, uh, so we had the repentant faithful serve, the raving fans sing, but is this the most uh, clearly and wonderfully Christ-embodying call of um, all, all three? It's Romans 12 verse 1 is where I'm going, the reverent fearer's sacrifice. And folks, I'm conscious that this is the silliest point name of all of my three-point names so far. Um, two of those words are very weird and probably confusing words, but the idea is this. The Bible calls us to fear God. It's one of the quite normal ways for the Bible to call us to, to worship God. Uh, to fear God, not because we're scared of God, but because he commands all of the power uh, over all of our lives, he owns us and commands us and he rules over your life and mine. And he does it for good, by the way. There is no one else that you would want in that position. And that's not so much a scary thing as it is just a starting point that we've all got to admit and recognize. The fear of the Lord, says Proverbs, that's the beginning of wisdom. That's our starting point. If we want to live our lives the best that we can, then realising and respecting and uh, being reverent or honouring, honouring God as God is where I have to start. And that means, like Jesus, I best live my life like it belongs to him, 
Romans 12 verse 1. Let's read this um, passage together. It's our last one. Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Folks, we live in a very busy and bustling season of life, most of us. And in a very, may I describe it this way, ambitious pattern of church life. What do I mean by that? I just mean we actually expect in in our circles, not every church around the world is like this, we actually expect our faith to really matter and to mean something and to cost a fair bit of us. And I think that's great. We have good intentions for one another. We hold high aspirations to what we want to reach as a whole community and within our gospel communities and even within our friendships. We place high expectations on the very talented people that we share our church life with. And we uh, sometimes hold one another to those expectations, sometimes healthily, sometimes a little less healthily. But it's not just church life. I'm quite sure that nearly all of us feel stretched and like we're giving about as much as we can in terms of our time and our finances, as we reflected on before, our energies and our attention to a whole range of competing priorities in our lives. We put our hand up to help where we can. We dig deep when we have to. We complain, but only when we let our guard down. But we do realise, don't we, brothers and sisters, just two things. Firstly, that God does not call us to lead lives that are indistinguishable from the lives of the world around us. Being a Christian does mean a different life. Do not conform, verse 2 there, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. It does involve difference and change. In God's wisdom, the world will come to know his good and pleasing and perfect will through, extraordinary as this is, the imperfect living sacrifices of his people as we bear testimony to Christ. But you do realise also, secondly and finally, don't you, that God calls for your whole life, right? Yes, every waking hour, Yes, every ounce of our energy, every bit of your body, not because he is mean or miserly. What does it say there in verse 1? In view of his mercy. God desires that we might lead truly glorious lives in this world, radiant, lovely lives with hearts that throb for him, with lives that advertise his goodness to the nations around us. So glorious that through his gospel communities, the world might find the one that we were all made to worship. That's what we give ourselves to. Let's conclude where we began in the words of John Piper. The whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Feel, think and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. Be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. Shall we pray together? Our Lord God in heaven, 
may we spend this year together exploring that infinite starry wealth of the glory of God as we find it in the face of Christ, the one who lived and died and rose for us. But Father, may that exploratory work change us and challenge us and cause us to conform to the character of the Lord Jesus. Father God, we do pray for our community, uh, as in beyond our church, the friends and family, the people who are so very dear to us, but whose hearts are very far from you. Lord, ultimately, we know it's not down to us and it cannot be done. Uh, They would be lost if it were down to us. But we believe that you can use even us, even this very year, even with our failings, to draw to yourself a world caught in in wonder at your grace and drawn to worship you, the God of glory. So God, would you do that, please? Would you grant that we make progress in that to the praise of his name? Amen.